You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your host with you. And now we have an hour of news and information relating to psychiatry, which is my specialty. Anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, making sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness or insights into human behavior. This is the show where you will hear about all of that first without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental illness and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Appreciate your joining me again. This is the Wednesday, June 18, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. And of note, since we last got together, Father's Day was this past Sunday, so a belated Happy Father's Day to those of you who are listening who are fathers and hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, as such, uh, I did find an article that pertains to the brain and fatherhood, so it seemed logical to start the show off with that. And the article is about five ways that fatherhood changes a man's brain. Fatherhood can change a man's life it also changes his brain in ways that seem to equip dads with the very same baby sense that's often attributed to moms. From an animal kingdom perspective, human dads are unusual. They belong to a group of less than 6% of mammal species in which fathers play a significant role in rearing offspring. In these species, Paternal care often involves the same behaviors as maternal care, with the exception of nursing, of course. But how does fatherhood change a man's brain? Science has only recently delved into the neural and hormonal mechanisms of paternal care. But so far, the evidence suggests that mothers' and fathers' brains use a similar neural circuitry when taking care of their children. Moms and dads also undergo similar hormonal changes that are linked to their brain and behavior changes. Here are five ways men's brains change when they become fathers. Taking care of a child reshapes a dad's brain, causing it to show the same patterns of cognitive and emotional engagement that are seen in moms. In one recent study, Researchers looked at brain activity in 89 new parents as they watched videos, including some that featured the parents' own children. The study examined mothers who were their children's primary caregivers, fathers who helped with child care, and gay fathers who raised a child without a woman in the picture. All three groups of parents showed activation of brain networks linked to emotional processing and social understanding. These findings were published 
on May the 27th in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In particular, fathers who were their children's primary caregivers showed the kind of activation in emotional processing seen mostly in primary caregiver moms. The results suggest there is a parenting brain network common to both sexes. Pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding all cause hormonal changes in mothers. However, researchers have found that men also undergo hormonal changes when they become fathers. Studies in animals and people show that new fathers experience an increase in the hormones estrogen, oxytocin, prolactin, and glucocorticoids, according to a recent review of studies by psychologist Elizabeth Gould and colleagues from Princeton University. Contact with the mother and children seem to induce the hormonal changes in dads. In humans, dads who show more affection toward their children also tend to have higher levels of oxytocin. The effects of fatherhood on testosterone levels are less clear. Human dads show a decrease in testosterone, which researchers say may work to make the fathers less aggressive and bring them closer to their children. But some rodent dads show an increase in testosterone, which is possibly linked to their heightened protective behaviors. It remains unclear to what degree such changes in testosterone are the cause or the result of different parenting behaviors. Nevertheless, infant contact itself seems to modulate endocrine systems and activate neural circuitry in fathers in a manner that is strikingly similar to that in mothers. Uh, this study was published in October 2010 in the journal Trends in Neurosciences. Although dads who participate in childcare show an increase in oxytocin levels, the reverse also occurs. The hormone seems to increase childcare behavior. In a recent study, researchers found that sniffing a dose of this cuddle hormone gets fathers more engaged while playing with their kids, and their children are more responsive in return. Does this mean an oxytocin spray makes a good Father's Day gift? Not yet. The researchers warned that the hormone has a variety of effects on behavior, and not all of them positive. Fatherhood also affects dads at the neuronal level. The birth of a child seems to induce development of new neurons in the brain of fathers, at least in animal studies. Researchers say that these new neurons may develop in response to what scientists call environmental richness, that is, the new dimension that a child brings into the life of a dad. Studies have found that voles that met up with their pups showed increased cell growth in the hippocampus region of the brain, an area which is linked to memory and navigation. Other studies have found that new neurons in the olfactory regions of the brain enable father mice to recognize their pups. Although it is generally thought that a maternal instinct 
makes moms incredibly good at picking out their baby's unique cry, a recent study suggests that, in fact, dads are just as good as moms. To compare parents' performance in baby cry detection, researchers asked 27 fathers and 29 mothers to pick out their baby's cries from among the cries of five infants. On average, parents were able to detect their baby's cries about 90% of the time, and men did just as well as women. Now, I can imagine there are many women listening to that and thinking to themselves, what, there's no way my husband can pick out our baby's cry as good as I can. And if that were the case, why do they just sleep through it so much of the time? Well, there you have it. Even though that might not be your personal experience, research apparently bears it out. So again, uh, belated Happy Father's Day. Some interesting insights into how fatherhood uh, affects the male brain. Now, uh, this next topic on psychiatry today, tonight, uh, a less pleasant subject to be sure, and a follow-up on what we talked about last week, where yet another mentally ill person went on a deranged killing spree, uh, this time on a college campus in Seattle. According to the prosecutor in the criminal case, the Seattle campus shooter had gone off his medications. The man charged with killing one student and wounding two others at a small Seattle college had stopped taking his medications because he, quote, wanted to feel the hate, unquote, and he detailed his plans in a handwritten journal for two weeks before the attack. According to the prosecutor in the case, uh, a quote from the shooter was, I just want people to die and I'm going to die with them. Uh, wrote Aaron Ibarra the day of the shooting. Uh, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg released new details of the allegations as he filed charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and assault against Aaron Ibarra, age 26. And Satterberg is seeking a sentence of life in prison. Authorities say Ibarra has been held without bail, he is on suicide watch at the county jail since a student pepper sprayed him, tackled him, and then was joined by other helpful bystanders while he was subdued, ending the rampage at Seattle Pacific University. Ibarra's lawyer, Ramona Brandis, has said her client has a long history of mental issues but is aware of the trauma caused by the shooting and is sorry for whatever that's worth. She said that no decision has been made yet on whether he will seek a mental illness defense. But uh, from the information we have now, it's kind of hard to imagine why she would not pursue such a defense, uh, given that he's facing uh, life in prison in anyway. And she was quoted as saying, We have to look at his symptoms he manifested in the past, his treatment, and his jail records to determine whether his mental illness arises to the level of a defense. These are choices he's going to be involved in. He wasn't on his meds, and he committed an action that is incomprehensible. I have to agree with her there. Had he been on his meds, would this have happened? 
will continue asking that for all time. Now, this brings to mind a study that I told you about recently in which it was found that compliance with medication decreases the rate of violent crime. And that, in turn, raises the uncomfortable civil rights issue of how often authorities should be able to mandate involuntary outpatient treatment, including supervised medication. What this means is that someone who has a mental illness and has been convicted of crimes uh, as part of their sentencing can be mandated to outpatient psychiatric treatment and observed medication, meaning uh, health authorities would supervise and observe someone taking their medication in order to keep their mental illness under control. More on that and on the Seattle shooter case when we come back from this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know skipping doses of medication can be dangerous? If you have a chronic medical condition like diabetes or high blood pressure, it's important to take the medication prescribed by your physician. It is also important to remember that although you take a medicine to treat a condition, it is not a cure for the underlying medical condition. It is used to control it. For example, taking medication for diabetes will lower your blood sugar. However, if you stop taking the medication, the sugar will rise again. Changes in both diet and lifestyle, like adding exercise to your routine, are equally important. Working with your physician by following his or her recommendations is the key to controlling your disease and maintaining your health. Ask questions if you don't understand something. Taking control of your health is the key to wellness. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. Right before the break, we are talking about new information that uh, came to light about the uh, Seattle shooter, the mentally ill man who uh, went on a shooting spree at Seattle Pacific University. Uh, I was talking about the concept of involuntary outpatient treatment and supervised medication. This is not often employed, but where it is, it presumes that someone has already been convicted of some crime or another or has somehow or another come to the attention uh, of not the legal authorities and at least the Department of Health in terms of uh, creating some kind of public problem due to not complying with their treatment for their mental illness. And so it's not clear that um, 
Mr. Ibarra would have ever come to the attention of any of the authorities who could have ordered such treatment uh, that might have kept him on his medication. And as his own attorney says, that could have potentially prevented this crime if he had stayed on his medication. Now, this handwritten journal of his that they found, uh, police recovered it from his truck, which was parked nearby the shooting. And this is quite disturbing. It reflects his admiration for the school shooters at Virginia Tech and Columbine High School. Yet it doesn't clearly explain why he targeted this Seattle college. And I have to say, to my recollection, many of the cases of school shooters that have happened since Columbine have uh, expressed admiration for Cleveland and Harris, the two shooters at that incident. And folks, those murders at Columbine just seem to keep spawning new ones. Very, very disturbing finding. And indeed, in the uh, previous article that we talked about this incident, it came to light that he had actually gone to Columbine, Colorado, and visited the site of those murders. Now, Ibarra had considered other universities to launch his attack at. Washington State, Eastern Washington, and Central Washington were mentioned but apparently he dismissed them because they were too far away. Instead, weeks before the shooting, Ibarra took a tour of Seattle Pacific, a private Christian college in a leafy neighborhood north of downtown Seattle. He remarked on how friendly and helpful the academic counselor and students who showed him around were. And during the tour, he learned the academic year would end soon, solidifying plans for his attack. Now, he uh, shot one victim in the back of the head with a double-barreled shotgun uh, as the victim tried to run away. Uh, Some of the birdshot pellets struck another student who was standing several feet away. He tried to shoot another woman nearby, but the gun misfired and she escaped. He then fled into a building, encountering a man seated at a table, Uh, He threatened the man but didn't shoot, instead turning the gun on another female student who was coming down some stairs. She was severely wounded and remained hospitalized in satisfactory condition. It was as he tried to reload at this point that John Meese, a student building monitor, rushed out of his office, pepper sprayed the gunman, grabbed the weapon, and hid it in his office. He came back and helped another student hold the gunman down until police arrived. Ibarra fired just two shots, but carried nearly 50 shells and had 25 more in his truck. He obviously planned to kill many more people. Now, he also had a large hunting knife and planned to slit his own throat. Ibarra gave an hour-long police interview after his arrest saying he didn't specifically target any of the students, but had a, quote, hatred for the world in general, unquote. He told detectives he had been diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder and transient psychosis, but had stopped taking his medicine about six months earlier, again, because he wanted to feel his hate. The standard sentencing range for the charges is 69 to 86 years in prison, 
Uh, the prosecutor is seeking an exceptional sentence under a rarely used aggravating factor that the crime had a, quote, destructive and foreseeable impact on persons other than the victim. Well, again, uh, just a tragic, tragic situation. Uh, how is it possible that people with mental illness who have access, who have access to treatment uh, do not avail themselves of it uh, and certainly are perfectly within their civil rights to refuse said treatment uh, until and unless they commit a crime that causes their illness to somehow impact itself on society in a negative way. Uh, and, you know, here again we have a case where uh, a mentally ill person was able to have access to firearms. We don't know if he accomplished that legally or not. Perhaps more details on that will come to light in the future. Perhaps they will not. Uh, but again, uh, there seems to be little appetite for changing rules or laws in this country, whether we're talking about access to firearms or whether we're talking about restricting the civil rights of those with mental illness. Uh, there, there just is not uh, any solution to this problem that has presented itself. Certainly no steps that uh, anyone is willing to take because any of them would not be popular at all politically. I look forward to the day when I can stop having to talk to you about this type of thing almost every week. Now, in a somewhat related article, I came across the study that shows that teen bullies and victims of bullies are both, as, as groups, armed more than other kids. Teenage bullies and their victims are more likely to carry weapons than kids who are not involved in these abusive relationships, according to a new research review. With school shootings, a concern across the United States, the findings, culled from 45 previously published studies, put a spotlight on the potential link between bullying and subsequent violence. Bullying was already found harmful for victims in previous studies, but bullying may also be related to a more unsafe atmosphere in school for all attending children and the personnel through an increased likelihood of weapon carrying. Adolescents who carry weapons are more likely to get into fights, to suffer injury, and to experience hospitalization than adolescents who do not carry weapons. The analysis found that bullies, victims, and bully victims, kids who are picked on, who then become bullies themselves, were more likely to carry weapons than others, and bully victims were more likely to carry weapons than victims, especially in the United States, where guns are more accessible. One study found that bully victims were also more likely to report using a weapon than victims. Now, the research doesn't prove that bullying causes teens to take up arms or explain why they might do so. Still, reducing bullying may reduce weapon carrying among adolescents. It may be that victims carry weapons to protect themselves. 
Bullies might carry weapons in order to threaten or intimidate others or as part of an underlying aggressive personality that affects both bullying and weapon carrying. And bully victims may carry weapons for both protection and or intimidation. The analysis included 22 studies of victims of bullying, 15 studies of bullies, and 8 studies of bully victims. In all, the research involved more than 692,000 people, ages 11 to 21. And with such a large uh, number of subjects, the information is gleaned from, uh, this lends the results of the study much more weight. Experts disagree on the significance of the findings, which were published on June the 9th online in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics. Stephen Russell of the University of Arizona in Tucson said the results confirm it is the combination of being bullied and being a bully that is clearly linked to weapon carrying and thus the potential for serious harm in schools. Studies of school shooters reveal the same pattern, said Russell, who is director of the university's Institute for Family Studies and Human Development. He said they are generally boys who were both bullies and relentlessly bullied. To see this pattern borne out across multiple large-scale studies is very important to confirm that we need to pay careful attention to this potentially lethal combination of bullying and being bullied. But Madeline Gould, Deputy Director of Research Training in Child Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City, said the study has shortcomings. She says, although we have to be concerned about bullying, this study doesn't provide reliable evidence that if someone has been identified as a bully or bully victim, they have to be assessed to see if they are carrying weapons. The vast majority of young people are not carrying weapons. To assume that they are, based on this study, could lead to consequences we didn't want. You don't want to create more of a stigma that all of these kids are going to be a danger to the larger community. Uh, I have to say I have issues with that stance. Uh, I think that uh, while you certainly can't make blanket assumptions with everything that's happened recently, I feel like we do have to err on the side of safety. Dr. Thomas Paul Tarshish director of the Bay Area Children's Association in Cupertino, California, believes a culture shift is needed to deal with bullying in the United States. We have this broken mental health system and also a broken system around recognizing and helping bullies and victims in schools. He thinks that solving the problem needs to start in elementary schools most schools only pay lip service to bullying with an assembly or a signing a book about bullying. He says there are very few districts that have taken a community-wide approach to address bullying, and that's what needs to happen. Bullies, victims, and bully victims who carry weapons need mental health help. 
All right, we'll be right back after this break. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your host on the show for all the latest mental health-related news. Had to end the last segment abruptly to get in the commercial break. Just to finish the thoughts about the studies of teen bullies and victims. Uh, Yes, it is true that bullies, their victims, and kids who are both need help from mental health professionals, but in order for that to happen, it's going to take intense cooperation among parents, teachers, school administrators, law enforcement, uh, and uh, the suggestion of uh, the culture shift by that uh, one expert of the Bay Area Children's Association. Uh, I think uh, I couldn't agree more with that. We have to move away from tolerance of bullying as a rite of passage of childhood and adolescence. And um, we also have to move away from, uh, as he says, paying only lip service with with pretty-looking policies in manuals that sit on shelves in offices and uh, assemblies that talk about it once a year, uh, but no follow-up. There has to be much more aggressive measures taken against bullying in order to stop the the tide of violence and the rates of weapons carrying among these groups. Moving to our next topic on psychiatry today, a military mental health update. And now uh, some good news along those lines. More U.S. service members are in treatment for mental health disorders. Now, on the surface, that might sound like, well, that's a bad thing, but not when you take a closer look at the findings. About 3.5% of United States military personnel 
were in treatment for mental health conditions in 2012. That's up just 1% in, from 2000, according to a new military study. Experts said the rise is likely due to two factors. An actual increase in mental health disorders since September 11, 2001 and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as the military's efforts to get more soldiers into treatment. That second factor is the positive part of this. In other words, while yes, there may be more service members who have mental health problems, the fact that the rates of those uh, people who need them getting more treatment in the armed services means that the trend toward uh, service members avoiding mental health treatment due to stigma and fear of negative impact on their career may be finally turning, uh, maybe finally the efforts at communicating uh, to people in the armed services that it's important to seek out mental health treatment when needed is finally getting through and having an impact. The military has become more sensitive to the needs of personnel and their families, and it's been making an effort to ensure that people who need treatment receive treatment. There may still be many service members who are not getting treatment, however. Past studies have suggested that post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and other mental health conditions are much more common in the military than the treatment rates would imply. One found that psychiatric diagnoses among active duty troops rose from just over 5% in 2003 to 9% in 2011. And various studies have shown that anywhere from 10% to 25% of service members have a mental health disorder or psychological problem like general anxiety or depression-like symptoms. There are people who are still not stepping forward to get help. Some service members do not seek treatment because of the stigma associated with receiving mental health care, which the military has tried to decrease. But the stigma still exists, not only in the military, but in society in general. So that could be one reason, and probably is one reason, that treatment rates in this study are lower than the rates of mental health conditions in past research. The findings were reported in a recent issue of the Medical Surveillance Monthly Report, and they're based on records, medical records from active duty United States service members for the years 2000 to 2012. The study found that at any given point in 2012, about 1 in 29 troops were in treatment for a mental health disorder, which was 2.5 times the rate in 2000. A majority of those service members, 58%, received just one treatment course. But by 2012, more troops were receiving longer courses of treatment. The percentage of service members who went through intensive treatment, that is more than 30 visits, 
shot up nearly sixfold between 2000 and 2012. The implication is that today's service members are receiving more care for their mental health issues, but it's impossible to know from medical records whether troops were getting the appropriate amount of care. Concern about United States service members' mental health has grown in recent years due to a rising suicide rate. Since 2009, the annual suicide rate has hovered around 18 per 100,000 active duty troops versus 10 to 11 per 100,000 in 2005. A 2013 study found that those suicides seem to be unrelated to combat experience overseas. Instead, service members with depression or drinking problems, whether they'd been deployed overseas or not, were at increased suicide risk. Active duty troops and veterans need to keep hearing the message that treatment, whether talk therapy or medication, is available and that asking for help is a sign of strength. These latest study findings show that that message is finally starting to get through and we can only hope that that trend continues. Now let's turn our attention to some studies about the connection between the body and the mind and also how to take good care of your brain. First of all, something that I've preached about for a very long time is that good heart health means good brain health. Take good care of your heart and that will also take good care of your brain. And uh, here is an article I found validating that point of view and giving some specific tips about it that keeping your heart in shape will keep your mind sharp. A healthy brain depends on a healthy heart, according to the article. Good cardiovascular health may not only help prevent stroke and dementia, it also may play a part in maintaining memory and learning abilities. To survive, brain cells rely on a constant supply of oxygen from the blood. Studies have shown that the better the heart and cardiovascular system is working, the better the brain may function. New research gives further support to this heart-head connection. Researchers found that people with poor cardiovascular health were more likely to have learning and memory problems than those with excellent or even intermediary heart health. The investigation that we're talking about evaluated the brain health of 17,761 adults over the course of four years. These study subjects, who were all 45 years old or older, with normal cognitive function that is related to conscious mental activities, and no history of stroke at the heart, uh, or sorry, at the start of the study, and then at the beginning of the investigation, the researchers measured their cardiovascular health according to the American Heart Association Life's Simple Seven Factors, 
which includes smoking habits, diet, physical activity, body weight, blood pressure, blood cholesterol, and blood sugar. Based on these factors, the researchers calculated a score for each patient, ranging from 0 for the lowest cardiovascular health to 14 for highest cardiovascular health. Individuals who scored 0 to 6 points had low cardiovascular health. Those with 7 to 8 points had intermediate cardiovascular health, and participants reaching 9 to 14 points had high cardiovascular health. The study authors noted that men, individuals with higher educations, and those with higher incomes tended to have higher cardiovascular health scores. Four years after the study started, the researchers assessed mental function of each subject using a three-test measure of verbal learning, memory, and fluency. Verbal fluency, for example, was gauged by having participants name as many animals as possible in a minute. After taking into consideration differences in age, sex, race, and education, the investigators found cognitive impairment in 4.6% of those with the lowest cardiovascular health scores, 2.7% of those in the intermediate group, and 2.6% of those with the highest cardiovascular health scores. Those maintaining even an intermediate level of cardiovascular health had cognitive scores similar to those with the best cardiovascular health. So there you have it. Only those with the, the worst cardiovascular health showed significantly more cognitive problems compared to those with even intermediate and certainly those with excellent cardiovascular health. Uh, so therefore, uh, this validates the assertion that taking good care of your heart uh, will also help take good care of your brain and therefore help functions like thinking and memory and concentration to function uh, well into advanced age. Now, we're going to take another commercial break here, and when we come back, we'll have the American Heart Association's Life's Simple 7 Guidelines to Maintain Cardiovascular Health, which in turn will maintain good brain health. We'll have that and more after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. FollowSniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. FollowSniffles.com. 
This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hi, this is Kate Copsey, inviting you to listen year-round to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, every Saturday at 10 a.m. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist host with all the latest mental health news. And right before the break, we're talking about a study validating the assertion that good cardiovascular health dictates good brain health and good cognitive function. So without further ado, here are the American Heart Association's tips to maintain cardiovascular health, known as the Life's Simple 7 Guidelines. Number one, don't smoke. That kind of speaks for itself. We know that's bad for the heart and the brain. Number two, eat a healthy diet, including fruits and vegetables, fish, fiber-rich whole grains, low salt, and low sugar. This type of diet has been well documented to uh, minimize the risk of heart attack and stroke and result in better cognitive function. Number three, get at least 150 minutes of moderate physical activity per week or 75 minutes of vigorous physical activity per week. That is not as much as you might think and even that 150 minutes of moderate physical activity, so half an hour, five days a week, you think you can spare that? That amount of activity has been associated with improved cardiovascular health. Number four, maintain a healthy body weight with body mass index below 25. Admittedly, that may be a challenge, uh, the way BMI is calculated, um, results in some pretty strict limits for some people, uh, but rather than the absolute goal of that number 25 being the case, I think certainly getting close to it as possible is important. Uh, we know that BMI of 30 or above is uh, associated with problems, not the least of which is depression is correlated with the BMI of 30 and above. Number five. 
maintain a healthy blood pressure level below 120 over 80. And again, these guidelines have been a moving target in recent years. Used to be 140 over 90, uh, then 130 over 90. Now it's moving down to 120 over 80. Uh, are there going to be some people for whom, ironically, that's too low? Yes. Uh, but again, the point being that maintaining good blood pressure is crucial in maintaining good cardiovascular health and cerebrovascular health that is preventing stroke as well as heart attack. Maintain a healthy blood cholesterol level below 200 milligrams per day. And number seven, maintain a healthy blood sugar level below 100. Now, the study was published in the June 11 edition of the Journal of the American Heart Association, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke helped support this study. Next up on Psychiatry Today, another article showing the connection between health and uh, the mind and emotion. Uncontrolled emotion can damage your health. And it has to do with how we handle anger, especially. And According to the uh, experts quoted for the article, how we handle anger is something we all learned as kids, but that can be changed. Anger is a natural and normal reaction to life's unavoidable irritations, but uncontrolled, it can escalate and end up damaging one's health and relationships. Generally, anger is unhealthy coping. And how we handle our anger is, again, something we learned as children. Usually, what we see in people who express anger when stressed or upset is that they have grown up in a home where that was modeled. The behaviors we see and experience as children become the model for how we behave later in life. If you grew up with abuse, where anger was the predominant emotion in the home, You've learned that's how you deal with stressors that come up, by getting angry. Everybody can feel when something doesn't feel good. But those are learned behaviors. That's a cycle. That's not to say that people who were exposed to uncontrolled anger early in life automatically repeat that behavior as adults. The first step to getting anger under control is awareness. Increased awareness gives a person insight into where the behaviors come from. Some anger management courses include mindfulness, a type of meditation that calms chaotic thoughts and feelings and focuses the mind on the present. It helps people get in touch with what's happening internally in learning to harness anger, different things work for different people. For some, deep breathing really resonates. For others, talking to themselves helps to diffuse a situation in the moment. Living in a fast-paced society, there's not a lot of time for ourselves. That's part of the problem. 
We walk around on autopilot and take our anger out on someone who doesn't deserve it. Once you recognize your anger is building, you can take a bath, take a walk, ask someone else to watch the kids so you can go for a drive, do something to interrupt the pattern and get out of that mindset. If you tend to be passive, instead of burying resentment until you explode, speak up and express your needs and wants, but not in an accusatory way that makes the other person feel attacked. Let them know how you feel. An aggressive person is getting their needs met through intimidation, not listening, and not taking into account how they're making others feel. A clear indication that you need help with anger management from a mental health professional is getting in trouble with the law because of your anger and the resultant behavior. Another is if people, that could be family members, co-workers, or peers in your life are pointing it out to you, then you should strongly consider getting help for it. Now here are some temper-taming tips that the article gives, and we can go through those. Think before you speak. In the heat of the moment, it's easy to say something you'll later regret. Take a few moments to collect your thoughts before saying anything. Allow others involved in the situation to do the same. Once you're calm, express your anger. As soon as you're thinking clearly, express your frustration in an assertive but non-confrontational way. Another great temper-taming tip is exercise. Physical activity can help reduce stress that can cause you to become angry. If you feel anger escalating, go for a brisk walk or run, or spend some time doing other enjoyable physical activities. Take a time out. A few moments of quiet time might help you feel better prepared to handle what's ahead. Identify possible solutions. Instead of focusing on what made you angry, work on resolving the issue at hand. Is your partner late for dinner every night? Schedule meals later in the evening or agree to eat on your own a few times a week. Remind yourself that anger won't fix anything and might only make it worse. Stick with I statements to avoid criticizing or placing blame, which might only increase tension. Use I statements to describe the problem. Be respectful and specific. For example, say, I'm upset that you left the table without offering to help with the dishes, instead of, you never do any housework. Don't hold a grudge. Easier said than done, right? Forgiveness is a powerful tool. If you allow anger and other negative feelings to crowd out positive feelings, you might find yourself swallowed up by bitterness or a sense of injustice. But if you can forgive someone who angered you, both of you might learn from the situation. Or even if it's not someone that you encounter anymore, by your forgiving them, 
you let go of the anger and resentment that you hang on to, which only hurts yourself and certainly has no impact on them. Use humor to release tension. Lightening up can help diffuse tension. Use humor to help you face what's making you angry and possibly any unrealistic expectations. Avoid sarcasm, though. It can hurt feelings and make things worse. Practice relaxation skills. When your temper flares, put relaxation skills to work. Practice deep breathing exercises. Imagine a relaxing scene or repeat a calming phrase such as, take it easy. You might also listen to music or write in a journal, whatever it takes to encourage relaxation. And finally, know when to seek help. Learning to control anger can be a challenge for everyone. Consider seeking help for anger issues if your anger seems out of control, causes you to do things you regret, or hurts those around you. Now, those are all excellent temper taming tips, and they come to us from the Mayo Clinic. And uh, the other information in the article about how anger can damage health and relationships uh, comes to us from Jill Calderon, a doctoral student in counseling psychology at the University of North Dakota. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and that you found it informative and that uh, I hope that till we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening, folks. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.